Hello and welcome to Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett, and this week my very special guest is the great Australian cricketer, Greg Chappell. One of the best batters of all time, Greg played 87 test matches for Australia between 1970 and 1984, and at that time he held the record for the most runs by an Australian, 7,110. He scored 24 centuries at an eye-watering average of 53.86. Greg has written a fine new book called Not Out. The book deals with Greg's life as a selector, commentator, coach and mentor. It's a fabulous read and there's a lot of life lessons in there that go beyond the realm of cricket. It's almost a sequel to the book he wrote about his playing days, Fierce Focus. When I was about 14, I rode my mongoose four or five kilometres to meet Greg when he was cutting the ribbon on a prize home, so I really appreciated the opportunity to sit down with him and talk about cricket, mindfulness and much more in this episode. If cricket is your thing, elsewhere in Time to Talk, in the series you'll find interviews with the likes of Steve Waugh, Dennis Lilly, the late Ashley Mallett, Andy and Chapel. If you enjoyed this episode, please give Time to Talk a good rating wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. I started chatting to Greg on a subject that came up in our Ian Chapel chat a while ago, which was music. So here he is sort of reminiscing for us and uh, talking about his life then, his life now, Greg Chapel. Are you a music fan like Ian? Not to the same degree, no. I, I sort of, Judy, my wife's sort of introduced me to classic music because that's her background and yeah. uh, I still love my rock and roll and I mean, we, when we watch, um, Judy will watch reruns of um, the old Pommy show, it's a police show set in uh, Yorkshire and it, they play all the old 60s, 70s uh, songs in the background. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, yes. I love that era. I remember yeah. Ian told me he's a big fan of Clapton and the yeah. Stones particularly. Yes. Did you see the Beatles when they came to Adelaide? Uh, we saw them in the street. Right. Didn't go to the show, no. Was it like everybody in Adelaide's in the, in the street Pretty for much. that thing? It's incredible yeah. when you see that vision. Well, it was it? Like the only other time I can remember lying in the streets was when we had to, from school, when the Queen arrived. We yeah. had to go and stand on buddy... Um, uh, the side of the road and wave our bloody little flags and the next time was when the Beatles arrived and they drove the same path up to the city and we all lined the streets there but funny enough yeah, I, I got to like their, their music but because everyone loved the Beatles yeah, I chose the Rolling Stones I just thought well bugger it you know, I'm yeah. not going to be like everyone else so uh, um, even Dave Clark 5 was, you know, I was, was more popular with me than than the Beatles. Tom Hanks' favourite band. Is it really? Yeah, he, he picked them over the Beatles. Wow. Yeah, I think he inducted them into the Hall of Fame. But I, th- I think Dennis told me that, was it Mick Jagger was in the crowd in 73 when you were in the West Indies? Yeah. And he invited him back to the dressing room. Yeah. And, uh, he, uh, we ran into him a few times because he, he used to organise some of his recording, particularly in, in the Caribbean, because in 73 he was doing stuff with Peter Tosh. Yes. Um, he did that uh, walk and don't look back yep. thing with Peter Tosh. Um, we ran into, um, on that same trip in Montego Bay, um, Cat Stevens was doing tea for the Tillerman in Montego Bay. Oh, wow. We ran into this big African-American bloke in the bar. Dennis and I weren't playing that game, so we were down the beach and yeah. in the bar. And we just started chatting to this big guy sitting at the, at the bar and turned out he was the drummer in the, the backup band. So he said, would you like to come and watch a session? So, sure. Wow. And then another day we were down the beach and we ran into David Lean, who's the, the, oh, the movie filmmaker. producer. Yeah. And he was doing Papillon. And so we went to the, the um, set there. Um, what's his name? Um, Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen wasn't yeah. present at that time, but they were doing sort of 
top up sort of shooting on different things. In the day we were there, the um, a former French guard came yes. to see the site just to. Uh, in fact, they hadn't started filming, I don't think. So he was just checking with the authenticity. This guy didn't speak English. His wife was there and translated for him. He broke down because the the jail that they'd recreated just brought back so many memories. It was so realistic. And as you'd appreciate, you know, one half of the building they'd built was the jail. The yes. other half was the hospital. You know, right. So you look at it from one end, it's the hospital. Look at it from the other end, it's the, the jail. Wow. Then we went and had a look at the, the shed, and it was literally a shed where they had the, the ship that they transported them from the mainland to the island. And you walk into this thing and it looked like a solid ship made out of balsa wood on a bloody rack that they could rock and bloody... Wow. So that was sort of the first exposure I'd had to the sort of bullshit behind the scenes <laughs> of, a, <laughs> of a movie. Um, so it was a remarkable trip. You know, Jagger, Mick, um, bloody uh, Cat Stevens and David Lean all in one... Oh, and the other one I didn't realise until many years later, we were in um, Kingston. And when we went out, you know, there was always guys on the street selling hoochie cooch and yes. bloody whatever else they were selling. And they'd always, buddy, yeah, you man, you, man, you want... And mate, no, no, a couple of red striped beers will do us fine, <laughs> you know. And um, one, of the, one day I was coming back. We weren't supposed to go out on our own, but I don't think... I, I think we went together, but I sort of stayed on to do something. I was walking back. And this bloke who we'd sort of got to know because he was trying to sell shit to us every time we went out. He said, man, what are you doing on Sunday? And I said, I don't know, what, what do you mean? And he said, oh, there's a party on. You know, would you like to go and bring a few of the guys? And we went to this old house in the middle of Kingston and reggae music had just started and I fell in love with reggae music. I just thought, like this, how good's this? You know, a lot better than the old steel band shit that yeah. they, <laughs> they went on with. And we had this group up on the balcony, you know, on the veranda, like a big old Queenslander. And we were out in the quite, quite large garden and there had been a hundred more people just dancing and drinking beer and smoking dope, the rest of them. And uh, about two years later, Bob Marley became a big, big thing. That was Bob Marley on the fucking oh. veranda with his bloody band. Incredible. It was his house. Incredible. So, I mean, he was well known to the locals. Yes, but, but not outside Marley, of that. You know, I mean, we didn't know Bob Marley and I reckon it was 75 before he started to hit the international scene. Yes, that's right. And I saw this bloke because the dreads sort of yes. gave him away. And I thought, fuck, that's the bloke that was on the <laughs> veranda. So there you go. You know, I was trying to think if we'd met before, and uh, we had, neither of which you'll remember, but one of them was at, there was an LRB concert at the Hilton with Warren Zevon. Yeah, okay. Which is kind of surreal now, I think, that Warren Zevon... Gee, that's would, a few years ago. It would be, it must be mm. 20-something years ago. Yeah. But I remember it was a good night. But... Um, it's funny you mentioned Yorkshire before. I was flicking through YouTube and uh, there was a piece on Jeff Boycott. He was talking about making his 100th 100th. Yeah. And he said um, when you were bowling to him, he was worried you were going to bounce him because he said you had a very awkward bouncer because of your height. Hmm. And then when I was flicking through your stats. I saw that you took seven for 40 against Yorkshire in the late 60s. Hmm. So he obviously had filed that away in his brain. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't think I bowled too many bounces that day because you didn't have to. You just had to pitch the damn thing up. It was a pretty green, right, green wicket, and uh, I just happened to be the one that got the edges on that, on that day. But you know, I, I'd have been willing to wrap that wicket up to take with me to bowl on, but not to bat on. <laughs> <laughs> but the one where Jeff got his hundredth hundred was a slightly different wicket than. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I wish I'd known that at the time. I might have bowled him a few more bounces. <laughs> 
congratulations on the book. Thank you. I, I, was, I really love this book. It was interesting because um, obviously the lion's share of it is to do with your life post playing cricket mm. when you talk about you know, working as a selector, commentator, coach, etc. But what really struck me was towards the final third of the book where there's a lot of, um, I don't know, life lessons that can apply to people that don't play cricket, yeah. I think, which I found very impactful. Um, sort of a, a sub-thread that goes through the whole book is the power of your imagination. I mean, you actually say at one point that uh, imagination is a person's superpower. Hmm. Um, and it, you seem to obviously have a very strong will of visualising things. And I wondered, when did this idea of visualisation before you went out to play, and I assume you use visualisation in your life now, hmm. when did it come into being for you? Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I, obviously, well, i tell you when it did come into being. I do know. As a kid, you know, in the backyard... Um, because there's a five-year gap between Ian and I and there's four and a bit years between Trevor and I. So for large chunks of our early life, we were only children because when I was born, Ian was at primary school. Yeah. So during the day, I was at home on my own with mum and so on. Then by the time I got to primary school, Ian had moved on to secondary school. So Trevor then had a few years of being home on his own uh, with, me, with both of us off at, off at school. So there was a lot of time just playing on, on your own. There was a lot of time uh, when we, we played together separately because there's nearly a 10-year age gap between Trevor and Ian. So there wasn't much crossover yeah. for them in the early days. And I was probably nine before Ian recognised that I was alive um, because he had his own mates. You know, and yeah. He didn't need a four-year-old running around after him when he was nine years of age and, sure. and so on. You know, he, he's been my hero since I can remember because I wanted to do whatever he was doing. And he treated me like the family dog. You know, he'd kick me in the guts and send me home. You know, it's just so. But he obviously ran out of mates when he was about nine years of age and I got invited to play in the test matches in the backyard. You know, the, the bad news for me was that as the older brother, he was Australia and I had to be England because our test matches were always Ashes games. He had dibs on being Australia. Well, there was no, <laughs> there was no uh, conversation around it. He was Australia and I had to be England. But... Yeah, as I say, he was off doing his stuff. He was at school. So I would play on my own, throwing the ball, you know, tennis ball against the wall and, you know, playing test matches. And, you know, my heroes were Neil Harvey and Norm O'Neill, Alan Davidson, Richie Benno, those sort of guys. Um, and even though Alan, da sorry, even though Neil Harvey was a left-hander, you know, he was my hero. So when I batted for Neil Harvey in these solo test matches I always batted left handed and he always made runs you know he was never allowed to get out it was a no it was a no ball if I hit the you know something that was a fielder and so on but so that was when the imagination started I you know I could see these test matches in my mind mm. I could see you know Fred Truman running up to bowl to me I could see Statham running up to bowl and so the, they were real test matches and so were the ones that I played against Ian so we were making decisions in real time. And that's where I, I learned the importance of training in context. If you just go and bat in the nets mindlessly or bowl in the nets mindlessly, you're not going to improve much. But if you can put yourself in a game situation in those nets, it changes the whole context of, of what you're doing. So that's when the imagination started. It probably then was, was really reinforced to me when I went and played for Somerset um, in the late 60s. I was a 19-year-old, turned 20 in the first year season that I was there and turned 21 in the August of the second season. 
the first season I loved. I mean, playing cricket six days a week and they were actually paying me for it. Oh, how good was that? And it was like going to a university of cricket. I was batting against Fred Truman. My first season for Somerset was his last for Yorkshire. You know, was I he batted, still nippy? Um, he was probably past his best by then. But, yeah. you know, he still had the aura and he thought he was quick and that was half the, <laughs> half the battle. Um, but, you know, I played against the then uh, England test team, you know, playing amongst the, scattered yes. amongst their counties. So um, it was just an amazing experience. But then we lost a few bowlers for the, the next year and I had to do a lot more bowling in the second year. And it became hard work. And, you know, I'd sort of got out of it what I needed to get out of it for that mm. stage of my development. And I used to ring home on a Sunday and speak to mum and dad, um, you know, and I remember ringing home probably late July in that second season and talking to dad and I said, look, I'm going to be back in September. Can you keep your eyes open for a job? Because I'm not coming back here again. Uh, you know, I'm starting to get yeah. the wrong mindset. You know, I'm starting to hope for it to rain. I'm, you know, I didn't want to go and play today. You know, day off would be great. And I didn't want to get into that mindset because I'd loved every moment of playing cricket up to that point. Yes. And now it was starting to get a grind. So I realised that if I wanted to play cricket, it would be better for me to do it as a pastime, have a job, yeah. play cricket on weekends and whenever a Shield game was on. And if I'm good enough, play test cricket. That's my ambition. And it always had been my, my ambition. So in that second season, when I, you know, I, I started to realise that I was going to have to um, you know, get, get a real job and, and cricket was going to be my uh, pastime, I thought about, yeah, there's a lot of downtime in a cricket season, in a cricket match. You know, you're out, you're sitting around waiting for the rest of the blokes to get out so we can go and field. And I thought, you know, maybe I should study part-time. Then I gave myself a couple of uppercuts and said, no, you weren't that good at it the first time <laughs> around. Doing something formal would be a waste of time because what are you going to do anyway? What, yeah. what am I going to study? So what I decided to do was to buy books and I started buying books, um, autobiographies, biographies on famous people, just reading about successful people and, and what made them successful. And a lot of them were American sort of based books, um, but there, there were a lot of English books as well. And I don't know what triggered me to do it, but then I bought a book called Psycho-Cybernetics. It's just the Maxwell Maltz book. Maxwell Maltz book. And that was a real epiphany for me because it was the first time I realised and read about the power of the mind and, you know, what a great resource it was that none of us were using properly. And, I mean, the theory, you know, running through his book, the theme running through his book, he was a um, plastic surgeon. And what he realised, it didn't matter how much work he did on... A, on improving someone's appearance if they'd been injured or burnt or whatever. If they didn't see themselves as that improved person yes. and still saw themselves as the, the disfigured person before they went into the operation, nothing changed for them. Yes. So your attitude became critical to what, what you did. And it sort of switched something on for me that... Yeah, I can go and hit a thousand balls a day and not get better. I might even get worse. But if I can improve my thought processes by 10%, mm. I'm going to get better maybe 100% because it's going to improve uh, you know, everything that I do. And I realised that 
firstly, going back to our father, I mean, the best thing Dad ever taught me, and I'm sure he taught the other two, was that you've got a bat in your hand for one reason and one reason alone, and that's to score runs. So that was really important because that is an attitude. You know, yeah. you're looking to score runs. Physically, you're, you're active. You're looking to move. You're looking to be positive. If you're looking not to get out, you don't move. Yeah. And therefore, you don't get into good positions to be able to score, and you're probably in bad positions to survive. So that was, was critical. So I sort of tied the two together and realised that my attitude and my thought processes were the key to being successful and that there's an efficient way to live and an inefficient way to live. You can, if it's all about hard work, you probably just wear yourself out. Yes. But if it's about smart work, that's how people made money. That's how people yeah. have, you know, been successful in all forms of life, whether it's music, business, yeah. art, sport. And luckily that sort of got me started down that path. And then... Uh, a couple of years, a few years later, I'd played a, se a series. I played my first series against England, and then the, and it started with a bang, and then sort of tapered off during that series. Next year, we were meant to play South Africa, but they were banned from international cricket, so they hastily organised the rest of the world team yes. to play five Test matches. And I was twelfth man in the first two Test matches because I, I felt like I was batting well, but I was getting twenties and thirties and forties and getting out. So. We were down in Hobart, Ian and I were playing in an Australian 11, which was nine Tasmanians and Ian and I. Um, Tasmania weren't in the Sheffield Shield yes. competition at that stage. So we were staying in Hadley's Hotel in the middle of Hobart, lovely old hotel, which is still there, and big, beautiful balustrades on the stairs, the old stairs going up. And we were going out to dinner with um, Bishan Beatty and... Um, couple of the other rest of the world guys and I was waiting in the foyer for Ian to come down uh, which I always seemed to be doing I was there and waiting for him generally but the um, concierge came over to me and he handed me an envelope and he said oh Mr Chapel, this is for you and I recognised from the handwriting it was from our father and so I opened it and it was a cutting out of the Adelaide Advertiser which was our home newspaper at the time and um, Keith Butler was the cricket writer and Keith had written a scathing article about me that I was wasting my talent. And if I didn't pull my finger out, not only wouldn't mm. I be in the Australian team during the summer, but I wouldn't go on the England tour in 72. And Dad had just written a little note on the bottom of it. I don't believe everything Keith's got to say, but it might be worth thinking about. Now, he couldn't have had more impact if he'd been standing there and punched me in the nose. You know, wow. it was... And if he'd told me it, yeah. I probably wouldn't have taken any notice. Yes. But it was a great piece of coaching. You know, you're always looking for a tool as a coach to use to yeah. sort of you know, reinforce your point. And he had used Keith's words and just a subtle little message. And when Ian came down, I said, oh, mate, I'm not going out. You go ahead. I'll stay in. And I went back to the room and I sat down in the dark for a few hours and I thought about every innings that I'd ever played. Backyard cricket, school cricket, all the way through to test cricket. And what I realised was that on the good days, my thinking was very different from the, the bad days. Um, not thinking very much in the good days, you were just operating on autopilot. On the bad days, you were trying to force things to happen. You were trying to operate in the conscious mind and the conscious mind is too clunky to do that. 
And what dawned on me, that was the real epiphany, what dawned on me during that session was that if I could improve my mental skills, and, and the other thing that I learned in that session was that I did have a, a routine that I used spasmodically. Mm. When I was playing well, I tended to use it more than when I wasn't playing well. And so th that's what I realised, that if I could perfect that, not perfect my cover drive or my forward defence, but perfect my mental routine, because th what I learned in that session was that 99 times out of 100, I was getting myself out. Mm. And that that would probably be the case until I retired. So if I could delay the inevitable, I had to make more runs. What was the routine? Was it a uh, conscious routine, a subconscious routine? It was a conscious routine. What, what I sort of learned, putting it all together from Maxwell Maltz, and I'd read a lot of other yeah. self-help sort of books since then. But what I'd worked out and what I'd un then understood was that the conscious mind and the subconscious mind have two distinctly different jobs. The conscious mind is all about big picture. You know, I'm going to get out of the chair and leave the room. Yes. Um, I'm going to go to the shops. I'm going to go and get in the car. I'm whatever I'm going to do. And then you hand it over to the subconscious to run the program. So to get out of the chair, I don't think about how I get out of the chair. I just hand it over to the subconscious and mm. it works out that I shift my weight forward, get the balls of the feet on the ground to access the, the ground forces to mm. work against gravity and get me out of there. It's the same with a cricket bat in your hand. You know, the, we've got to comply to a whole bunch of laws, the laws mm. of physics, the laws of gravity, the laws of human movement. And that doesn't matter whether I'm walking, running, sitting, standing, carrying a cricket bat or not. And it only changes slightly with a cricket bat in your hand because it changes your balance and so on. But the same rules apply. And the same rule applies that, you know, the, the subconscious mind can deal with about 30 million messages a, a second. The conscious mind can deal with about 30 messages a second. So if you're trying to think your way through an exercise, and I find that I play golf, so I relearn this lesson every time I play golf. If you're trying to think about what you're doing, you can't do it because the conscious mind is too clunky to run the program. So once you've decided what you want to do, you're hitting a driver and you've got to keep it down the right side of the fairway, put the message in and then trust the subconscious to get you the outcome. And, and that's what... I believe was the foundation of my success as a cricketer and I think it's it's the foundation of success as a human just living life if you can trust the right side of you to run you know to run what it needs to run and have positive thoughts you know the old positive thinking is a bit of a cliche but if you expect good things to happen you create an environment where they're more likely to happen if you're expecting, if you get in the car and you expect red lights everywhere, guess what you get? Yeah. But if you, you jump in the car and you think you're going to the entertainment centre and I want a car parking space right out front and you can set that in your mind and actually believe it'll happen, I can promise you it'll happen more times than not. You're absolutely I, right. I get good parks wherever I go. Yeah. You know, and, and it's freaky. And, you know, and I've freaked a few people out with it. They said, oh, no, you, got to, you should go and park here. Yeah. No, 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 I'm going right out front. No, no, you won't get a park there. Yeah. But it's amazing how often you do. Yeah, absolutely right. It's funny. There's a great line towards the back of the book where you say that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, disappointment's a part of life. Once you can accept that, and it's how you deal with the disappointment that affects the rest of your outcome. Absolutely. Yeah, we're all going to have setbacks. You know, nobody has a perfect day every day. And that was one of the great life lessons I learned from cricket was that you're not going to have good days. Mm. In fact, you'll have more bad days than not. 
You know, Don Bradman batted 80 time, 82 times in test cricket and only got 29 hundreds. So he failed 53 times. He's twice as good as the next best. So the rest of us have had a lot of failure to deal with. And, and yeah. that's a big part of being able to be successful as a batsman particularly. Because if you can't handle a setback and still come back with confidence that you can make runs next time, you're never doing it. There's a great line in the book, um, or maybe it's your other book. I've sort of read them both in the last weeks. So they've kind of blended. Um, where if you got out, you kind of worked out you got 100 roughly every five innings. So you thought, well, there's only four more to go until I get 100. Well, that was a great life lesson, that I, you know, a cricket lesson that I learned from life. You know, I was working uh, as an insurance salesman at the time uh, for the AMP Society in Adelaide selling life insurance. And I was the youngest guy in that sales mm. uh, group that, that I was put in. And they were probably the oldest bloke in the group. And I mean, he would have been in his 40s, perhaps, and I was in my early 20s, and the other guys were sort of late 20s, early 30s. And we would always go down to the pub for lunch and have a game of snooker and, you know, spend as little time working as we possibly could uh, and hope that we could make enough to, to get by on. Um, this guy had been in the industry for, you know, 20-odd years. He sat at his desk all day. He was on the phone all day. Um, you know, he brought his lunch, he sat there, he had his lunch at the desk and at night time he went out and did his appointments. You know, we tried to do our appointments at the pub and wherever else we could do it as easily as possible. Um, and I came back one day early from lunch because I must have been heading off to play a Shield game, I, I imagine, because I was packing up my desk and he was sitting over in the corner and um, he said, oh, how are you going? Yeah, I'm going all right, I'm fine. And he said, no, no, I mean, mm. how are you going with the work? And, uh, yeah, I'm going okay, and I probably fudged how much work stuff I had in the pipeline. And he said to me, you don't like the telephone very much, do you? And I said, no, I don't like the telephone. I don't like people saying no to me. He said, Greg, they're not saying no to you. They're saying no to life insurance. He said, you've got to understand that every phone call is worth $50 to you. And I mean, I'm talking 19... 70, you know. That's a lot of money in 1970. So, you know, every phone call is 50, worth $50. And that, was, that smacked me in the face. And I said to him, how do you work that out? And he said, well, for every 10 phone calls I make, I make three appointments. For every three appointments, I make one sale. The average sale is $500. So every phone call is worth 50 bucks. It didn't help me immediately in the insurance industry, but it helped me immediately in cricket because I was trying to work out how to deal with failure. And the other, the other thing that he said to me, he said, every time I put the phone down and someone has said no to me, I say, yes, that's one closer to my next sale. And so I adopted that from a cricket was when I had a failure was great. That's one closer to my next hundred. Yes. And that sort of helped me to deal with the failure. You were always upset, often angry when you got out. That's fine. But if you're still angry an hour later, that's not so good. Yeah, it's interesting in the book, you kind of take us uh, behind the scenes on a few things. And uh, one thing you mentioned is the culture in a dressing room where, as you said, an hour later, you shouldn't be angry. But you'd walk into the Australian dressing room at some point and there'd be bats thrown and people mm. getting very distressed. It's quite unnatural. To, if you were in any other line of work, it'd be frowned upon, to say oh, the least, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, the, the dressing room in a cricket match is the only place, is your only sanctuary. And it is really, really sensitive. And if I'm a batsman that gets out and I'm angry with the umpire, I'm angry with myself, yeah. I'm angry with something, and I come in and throw the bat, that disturbs the whole dressing room. 
and you've got people there who are already nervous waiting to go into bat. Sure. And you've just destroyed the atmosphere in that dressing room. Yes. It's very selfish and it's very destructive. And I learned that lesson very early in, in my life. I was playing cricket at school. And I was at a secondary school in Adelaide and our, our um, coach for the first 11 was a fellow called Chester Bennett who'd played some first-class cricket for Western Australia and South Australia. And I was the youngest in the, the first 11. I was thinking I was about 14. And I, I was given out LBW and we were taught hmm. from a very early age, if you're given out, get off the ground, you don't look back, you don't shake your head. Hmm. You accept the umpire's decision and you go with, with grace, you know. But obviously Chester had recognised something in my walk off. I imagined I walked off pretty quickly. And my body language was screaming, not happy. And so I walked into what was the uh, prefect's room at the, at the school, which we used as our change room on Saturdays. So there were photographs all around the wall, lockers all around the wall. Thankfully, stone walls, slate floor. Yeah. And, you know, the school was about 100 years old at that stage. So the, the slate floor had a bit of a camber in it, you know, a bit of a swale in it from all the people that had walked over it. And I walked into the dressing room. It wasn't used as a viewing room because you couldn't see the ground yes. from, from there. So nobody was in it. So I thought I was pretty safe. And I, as I walked through the door and realised there was no one there, I threw my bat and it ricocheted off all the walls and was still spinning on the slate floor when I became aware of somebody else in the room and I turned around and Chester was standing right behind me. Yeah. And Chester was a very mild-mannered man, very wise fellow. He just stood there and he said, Greg, I'd look after that bat if I were you. You might want to use it again. And he turned and walked out the door. He couldn't have had a bigger impact if he'd picked the bat up and hit me with it. Yes, well. I never threw another bat and I discouraged anyone from throwing yes. bats from, from that day. So it was always a shock when I saw it. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Ian was probably, as, he, he could get as upset and angry as anyone when he got out, but he was smart enough to realise that he couldn't stay that way in the dressing room. So he would either go for a walk or he'd get in the shower and stay in the shower until he'd got his equilibrium back and then he'd come out and everything would be fine. As I say, being angry for a while, is nothing wrong with that. You, you, you'd be, you wouldn't be human if you weren't upset. Yes. But it's not healthy to make it last longer than a few minutes. Yeah, David Lee Roth once said, um, if you can afford to smash your guitar, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. What, was the, what was your favourite dressing room that you were ever part of in terms of a team? Was there a bunch of people you actually thought, oh, yeah, look, this I, is a great... I think I've often said, yeah, I, I would willingly trade the, the pay packet these guys get, but I wouldn't trade the era. Yeah, right. It was a great time. It was a great time to be alive, you know, the yeah. 60s, 70s and 80s anywhere. But in Australia, I think it was a very exciting time. 70s particularly, there was a lot happening, you know, protests against the Vietnam War. Um, you know, a lot of change was happening very quickly and people were pushing back against authority. And we were doing the same thing in cricket. You know, we were leading society. Society was leading cricket. And so it was an exciting time and they were a terrific bunch of blokes. You know, they, they were, particularly the guys that I, you know, I played the bulk of my career with, you know, always guys coming in and out. Yeah. But we never had any any bad ones but we had a lot of good ones yes and some great personalities and you know you spend a day in a dressing room you spend five days in a dressing room you spend the whole summer in a dressing room with a bunch of blokes and they know everything about you yeah. you can't hide anything and you know the the true you will show through at, at some stage so 
you, you soon learn that there's no point pretending to be something that you're not. Um, and if you're upset, you can... It, it was a safe place to be. I mean, no one was going to be critical. Yeah. Because they... Well, no, not all of them, because Doug Waters I never saw upset. You never knew when Doug came back into the dressing room whether he made 100 or out first ball. He just put his bat in his bag, took his pads off and lit up a cigarette. No different whatever happened. Most of the guys were pretty good. You know, most of us got angry if we, you know, we'd stuffed up or something. But um, good supportive group, had each other's back. Great to, you know, be in a, in a team with, great to share the good days and the bad days with. And, you know, when I look back on, on my playing days, it's those things I remember more than the, the individual successes yeah. or, or failures. Um, you know, the, the joy of working together for a common goal and achieving it mm. w- was fantastic. Not achieving it was sometimes very disappointing initially, but then we celebrated those as much as we celebrated the wins anyway. So <laughs> you soon, soon got over it and realised that not every day is a good day and it's how you deal with it that's, that's important. And we had to get over it and then start looking towards the next game. It's interesting, uh, you mentioned uh, that, that period there. You know, Richie Bernot, I think, once said that up until the 1960s, people in Australia said yes. Then after that, they started saying why. Why? Yeah. And that's when you had the big shift in the culture. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it would have been nice if the generation before us had done it. Yeah. But really, going through the revolution was the fun. You know, those two years of World Series cricket were probably the most exciting two years of my cricket career. You know, no one knew what was going to happen. Kerry had no idea. Yeah. We had no idea. It was trust. You know, we had to trust each other. And, and you know, what we, what we learned amongst ourselves and what Kerry probably realised before we did World Series cricket was going to survive and prosper on the quality of the cricket Yes, and none of the the four teams talked to each other about it but there was an unspoken understanding amongst us that if we play good cricket they'll come and watch and that's what happened. It it, it changed cricket didn't it? Um, It's travelled from that old era to the new era. Dennis Lee said to me on our podcast that the hardest thing was if you're out of form you couldn't go play a shield game and get some wickets or runs yeah. in your case because you were playing against the best people in the world all the time. Yeah, I think that was, you know, I'd got by up to that point on about 80% of my ability. Wow. Um, and I was forced through World Series cricket to, you know, to rev it up to 100% because you weren't going to survive. And that's where my mental routine and all the work I'd done mentally really came to the fore. That's what allowed me to you know, not need to go back to shield cricket or club cricket or whatever mm. to regain form. I had to regain it here. Yeah. And, and what I learned was that form is, is a state of mind. If I believe I'm in form, I'm in form. If I believe I'm out of form, I'm definitely out of form. <laughs> you, know, you probably can't guarantee 100% that if you, if you think that you're in form, you're in form. But if you think you're out of form, I can guarantee you 100% you're out of form. I remember coming about 18 months after I retired, I, Terry Jenner used to run a charity thing in Adelaide, which was a cricket ma- included a cricket match against businessmen who could buy their yes. place in the team to play with test cricketers. And Ian was batting at Adelaide Oval and I came in to bat. And I hadn't picked up a bat for 12, 18 months. And I can remember walking out to bat thinking... I better just have a look at him here and, you know, just sort of 
feel my way through this. And I couldn't hit the ball off the square. And Ian came down and he said, what the bloody hell are you doing? Or words to that effect. And I said, mate, I'm just trying to be careful. He said, well, it's not working because it looks awful. And the incredible thing was that I found it really hard to get out of that mindset on that day. And so 12 months later, we were invited, those of us that played in the centenary test, were invited to go to England and play in a, in a charity match for Derek Randall's benefit. Yes. So he reprised the centenary test. He had the England team and the wow. bulk of the Australian team when played in, the, in this game. It was great, you know, a week in, in England um, and, you know, half a day of cricket. Yeah. That, that can't be all bad at, uh, at Trent Bridge, lovely ground. And Arkell's just a, an amazing fellow, really out there sort of bloke, uh, but an incredibly good guy. And we had just we had a great week, but on on the morning of the game, the game didn't start t- till um, after lunch. So we had a lunch on the ground in the marquee, and it had been quite wet leading up, and there was some doubt as to whether the game was going to take place. And I remember the day before, some of our guys said, "You know, we're going down to the indoor nets to have a hit. Do you want to come?" And I said, "No, no, no. I'm only going to be stiff once, and it's <laughs> going to be after the game, not before it. You know, so I'll take my chances." And I'd worked out that going out to bat in the, in the previous game in a charity match and trying to be careful hadn't worked. So I yeah. decided in my own mind, I'm in the best form of my life. So at lunch, Judy was there, the you know, wives came with us and Judy was talking to someone on her left and I'm you know, chatting to someone on my right and they brought around a red wine and I had a glass of red wine. He came back to top it up and Judy said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm enjoying myself. Why? She said, oh, I didn't think you'd be drinking red wine before the cricket match. And I said, look, Last time I played, it didn't work very well. <laughs> Today, I'm just pretending I'm in the peak of my career. I'm in great form, and let's see what happens. I went out to bat. J.K. Lever, John Lever, who left-arm fast bowler, bowled in the um, centenary test. Bob Willis. John Lever came up and bowled the, the first ball to me, big half volley outside off stump, and I smashed it through the covers for four, and I was away. I got 80-odd and played as well as I'd ever played. Wow. Which just, again, reinforced that what you think about is so important and how you approach, you know, the attitude you bring to the game. Yes. The attitude that you bring to whatever you're doing is so critical. It's interesting. I, I started watching you play just as World Series cricket was coming to a close. So I saw you come back and play for the traditional Australian side. Mm-hmm. And I, last night I jumped on YouTube and I saw there's like a 20 minute package of your last innings and of course you've got 182 hmm. I mean that's a hell of a way to go out and it was interesting looking at you because the beard had gone the moustache had gone you looked like a younger version of yourself hmm. as you were playing that game um, when you got that 182 did you think yeah I've still got a few bit of petrol left in the tank or no, no I knew uh, I knew well, actually when Ian retired I think Ian was 29 when he retired, came back for World Series cricket a few years later. But when he retired, I said, mate, you're kidding. You know, you've got years of good cricket in front of you. And he said, no, no, mate, you'll know. Mm. When the time comes, you won't need anyone to tell you. And I ran myself out batting in the Adelaide Test match against Pakistan, which would have been the third test of the series or something. And I walked off shaking my head and thinking, what were you doing? You know, I've hit the ball straight to mid-off and ran I'm out by five yards. There was no run in it. You know, it was just, it just showed how far away from where I needed to be that I was. And because I knew, well, I didn't know until that point, but, you know, I'd 
resigned the captaincy. Kim Hughes was captain. And I was batting at six that summer. I thought, you know, this would be a lot better to give Alan Border and Kim the chance yeah. to... Well, you, start. Start, you started at seven, didn't you? I started my career <laughs> at seven. I was the, the all-rounder <laughs> in my first test. So, you know, I, I sat there and mulled over what had just happened at Adelaide Oval. And I thought, you know what, this is it. This is my last series. So I had two more test matches to go. And when we got to Sydney, I was 60-odd runs short of Sir Donald Bradman's yes. 6,996 runs in test cricket. He'd got him in half as many innings, so it wasn't a record. In, you know, I wasn't breaking his record because he'd done it much, much quicker. But it was a milestone. And I didn't want to, yeah, I, I didn't want to get five runs short of Sir Donald's mark, get out and think, oh, maybe I should go on next year. So, first morning of the test match, I got hold of um, Phil Ridings, who was the chairman of the selectors, and I said, Phil, this is my last test match. I'm announcing my retirement. He tried to sort of talk me into going on a bit further, and I said, no, mate, I'm done. This is it. Because I knew that if I was going to do anything worthwhile in that last test match, I had to find a way to inspire myself to get back to that mental state that yes. had worked so well for me, and I wasn't achieving at that point. That summer, I was the, f you know, not the first time, but it was, you know, when I realised that I wasn't as, you know, ready for batting as I'd always, always been. And if you're a little bit off, that's not good enough. At that level, you're just not making runs. The margin must be very small. It's very small. And so by making the announcement before I batted that this was my last test match, yes. it sort of girded the loins to be able to go and do the best I possibly could. I also spoke to, to Kim and said, mate, as it's my last test match, do you mind if I bat at number four? I, I'm just finding waiting to go into bats, getting a bit of a drag, and I'd really love to get the juices going. He said, mate, whatever you want, happy for you to do it. He was terrific. So I went, and the other thing was we'd bowled Pakistan out for, you know, 280 or whatever it was. We knew that if we got 400, we mightn't have to bat again because Sydney would turn and, you know, the, the wicket would start to be up and down a little bit and you didn't really want to bat in the last innings at Sydney. So that was another motivation to make sure we got over 400. You know, if we can get 150 in front, that's probably going to be enough. So I went out, I reckon it was about, 20 minutes or so before lunch on that day, the second day probably, I had to go in and Abdul Qadir was bowling. And Abdul at the Sydney Cricket Ground was a bit of a handful and Abdul had his tail up. He'd just got a wicket and he was coming in and um, he was one who really did thrive on confidence. But if you could get on top of him, you could see his tail drop a little bit and he, he wasn't quite the same bowler. But I knew I couldn't do much before lunch. I mean, all I could do was get out. So if I could get through to lunch and then have, no, I had the afternoon yeah. clear ahead of me, then that was what I needed. And I can just remember, I don't know what it looked like, but it felt pretty bad before lunch. I was treading on them, falling on them, you know, kicking them away, anything just to get through to lunch. So I managed to survive somehow through to lunch and then came out after lunch and very quickly hit him down the ground, hit him back over his head for four and it was like a punch in the face to him. You could see his sort of body language mm. change. And from there, I, I started to get more and more confident. I was back to being me again as a batsman. And, you know, I, I just consider myself very lucky that my first test innings in test cricket was 100 and my last test innings in it's remarkable. cricket uh, was a nice bookend. 
The first one was more good luck than good judgment. The second one, I probably had a bit more input in actually doing it. Uh, a, from the personal point of view, but B, from the, the team point of view, that get a good enough lead, we won't have to bat again, and we didn't. You know, we got a good enough lead, and we didn't need to bat again. There was a beautiful symmetry around that period when I saw Ian play his last innings. And I said to him that uh, I remembered watching him as a kid on TV and he scored a couple of 70s. And I thought, you must have been tempted to, to go on. And he said that um, by that stage, he was almost doing it because he'd learned how to do yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. He'd, uh, that flair had left him, he said. Um, but it must be a remarkable thing when you do get a ton like that and you've passed 100. Then what happens? Do you hit a mental reset where you try for 110, 120, or is it not as mechanical as that? Uh, it's mechanical, um, but it's more um, what what I learned going back to that epiphany in Hadley's Hotel in, in Hobart was that I had to play my each innings one ball at a time. It didn't matter whether it was the first ball or the hundredth ball. If my focus was in the right place that was what, what counted. And so I learned to play my career one ball at a time. Mm. It didn't matter whether I was naught or 100. It was only the next ball. The last one didn't matter. The one after that didn't matter. This was the only ball I had to be focused on. And if I saw that leave the bowler's hand, then I had all the information that I could possibly gather, then trust the subconscious. You know, I hit shots sometimes. You know, and where did that come from? You know, the reaction... I'd never thought about playing that shot. Uh, and it, yeah. just, it just happened as a response. And what, you know, batting is, the bowler's asking the questions, you've got to come up with an answer. Yeah. So it's a, it's a you know, a, a contest one ball at a time. And when I broke my innings down to one ball at a time, then it became easy. It didn't matter whether I was 96, 106. I, w I was resetting for every ball. So it was, and you know, I've never been a believer, and again, it goes back to Dad's comment about you've got a bat in your hand for one reason and one reason alone. You know, there was a bit of a theory going around in the 60s or early 70s that, you know, I don't know whether it was an English theory or somebody in Australia first said it that I heard it, but it was, you know, the first hour is for the bowlers and the rest of the day is for me. No, no, I'm not waiting for that. If he bowls me a half volley first ball, I want to score off it. Yes. Because the quickest way for me to get the pressure from this end to that end was for me to start scoring runs and put him on notice that if he misses his mark, I'm going to score off it. So then he knows that instead of the danger zone being as big as a tabletop, mm. the danger zone's as big as a book. And that was my job to turn that danger zone into as small an area as possible. If he came to this end of it, I'd hit him back past him. Yeah. If he dropped short of it, then I had to hit him somewhere else. And if he bowled me two half volleys and, and two half trackers in the first over, I wanted to be 16. Yes. Then there was only one bloke under pressure. And I didn't like having the pressure down my end, <laughs> so I wanted to get it down his end as quick as I could. I was lucky enough to interview Ashley Mallett a couple of months ago, who obviously passed away you know, very recently. Yes. He was a lovely man to chat to. I was very lucky to know him, but I was very fortunate that just out of the blue... I rang him on the Wednesday afternoon before he passed away on the Friday. I mean, I knew he wasn't, hadn't yes. been well, but I didn't realise that. And I don't think he did realise it was that imminent either because we had quite a... His voice was a bit weak from the cancer, but um, he was very buoyant and talking about, you know, catching up when I'm down in Adelaide and so on. And I was actually down in Adelaide two days later when he, when he passed away. I was going to catch up with him oh, you're kidding. while I was down there, but... Um, 
I thought he was at home when I spoke to him, but he may well have been in hospital. But the last 24 hours went pretty quickly, apparently. It was uh, very sad. Lovely man, wrote some terrific books. Yeah. I'm looking forward to getting hold. I still haven't got his Neil Harvey book, which he yeah, it's good wrote book. in the last year of his life. So um, I'm looking forward to getting that. Yeah, it's a good book. I actually spoke to him maybe a week before he passed away. Wow. And uh, th- this was about, um, we interviewed him for the book. And then he sent me a message saying, you should give Neil Harvey a ring. Yes. And I said, oh, I'd have to go through the, the, the publicists and blah, blah, blah. And he said, no, he's 93 years old at home in lockdown. <laughs> Just call him. Yeah, you'd be looking for so, a So I did. We chat. had a nice chat, yeah. which was great. But it, it was interesting. When I spoke to Ashley, he uh, told me that uh, Don Bradman, Sir Donald Bradman, gave him advice on his grip. Mm. And uh, Ian told me that uh, the Don advised him to start hooking again. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, famously, he gave you the advice about your grip. Yes. But uh, Ashley said to me that he thought that line at the end of the anecdote where Sir Donald says, uh, the other person I gave it to didn't use it. They never played for... Uh, played yeah. again. He said, I don't know if that's true. But you actually confirmed it in your that book. That is true. And, yes. and, and I've spoken to uh, Alan Shield, who was the other person who finished up being a journalist for the uh, Adelaide News and then the Adelaide Advertiser. Um he was in. He was at the ground the day that Sir Donald told me to change my grip, or suggested I change it. But then said, "And by the way, I've only given this tip to one other person. He didn't use it, and he's no longer in the team." And when I told that story, that anecdote around over a few beers at the yes. end of that day's play, Alan was in the room as the journalist, and he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, "Do you know who the other person was?" He said, "It was me." So it's a true story. Did he give a rationale for? Uh turning down the greatest basketball's all times advice? Well, I think probably comfort zone. You know, he was ah. in the comfort zone with his old grip and he, he probably didn't have the confidence to, uh, to change it. I'm just grateful that, um, you know, I w- was prepared to have a go and it felt comfortable immediately. So I was lucky in that, that regard. Um, you know, I, I think it's one of the, the things that I mean, I've learned over the years with guys that I played with and against and, and young cricketers that I've coached is that, I can't ch- change what you do unless I change the way you think or unless mm. you change the way you think. Um, and I've seen a lot of players that are, you know, you've either wanted to give advice to or you have given advice to and they haven't taken it because they're just too scared to get out of the comfort zone. And the comfort zone is not a comfortable place, actually. It's a very uncomfortable place. And you've got to get out, out of that comfort zone to go forward in anything. I, I agree. And, and, and there's a couple of times in the book you refer to this where you say that if you show a young player how to play a cover drive, I hope I'm getting this right, yeah. uh, you're putting a lid on what they can do. Yeah. And I would assume that if somebody like Jeff Thompson came along now, a coach may well, well want to try and change his action. Yeah, look, I, I think it would have been difficult in a different era. He may well have. I and mean, in fact, his, his eldest son bowled with a similar action and um, that exactly happened to him. He got in the system and they tried to change him mm. and, um, you know, it didn't work for him. And he, he then struggled to go back to what he was doing because if you mess with someone's timing, it's a bit like Ian Baker Finch when he tried to mm. change his golf swing to get extra distance. He didn't get much ex- extra distance and he lost a lot of control. Then when he tried to go back to what he was doing, he couldn't get there because you know, the damage had been done to his timing mechanism and uh, it really didn't, just didn't work again after that. I think you said in the book that uh, Dennis Lilly was the best bowler you faced. Dennis was, yes, the best bowler, the best competitor, 
the most difficult bowler to make runs against. I mean, he just gave you nothing. He gave you nothing to cut, did he? Apparently, nothing. You know, he gave no width outside off stump. He rarely went down leg side. You know, occasionally with a bouncer, he might get a bit leg side, but you know, he just bowled. You know, he would hit that danger zone time and time and time again. It was like water torture. Yes, right. Yeah, just when am I going to get a scoring opportunity? So then you'd try and manufacture a scoring opportunity, and that's when the risk got got greater and that's when he started getting wickets and you know I learned so many lessons from him yes you know that you know as a coach talking to bowlers mate just keep hitting that length yes right don't outsmart yourself and try and bowl six different balls and over because you'll bowl you'll miss your mark on four of them yes that's 16 runs you're off you're not going to get a bowl yes so don't worry about in swinger out swinger slower ball bouncer you know all of that stuff if you can bowl six balls and over hitting that danger zone, you're asking really tough questions. The batsmen, not many batsmen are going to be able to answer them all. Now, that doesn't mean you don't look for variety. But the best bowlers that I batted against, yeah. they mixed up their pace subtly, but what they didn't mix up was their length. Yes. And I re- remember talking to um, Erapilli Prasanna, who was a great off-spin bowler for India in the 60s. And, and early 70s. And, you know, I asked him when I was coaching India, I, I invited him to dinner one night. I wanted to understand, you know, his, his method and, and his um, routine. You know, what did you do when a b- new batsman came in? He said, I would rip the ball as hard as I could and try and hit him on the pads two or three times, get him thinking about spinning balls yes. and get him out with straight ones. Ah. You know, get him to look for the spinning ball and then he, you know, he, he would bowl straight balls. Wow. And he said, yeah, and this is a great line. He said, line is optional, length is mandatory. <laughs> and that's exactly right. And that's what all the good bowlers do. Derek Underwood, who wasn't a traditional left arm spinner for England, bowled, had a long run up and bowled a bit quicker through the air, but no two balls were exactly the same. They were all subtly, slightly different paces, but every one of them hit that danger yeah. zone. Yeah. And if there was a little bit of moisture in the wicket, Derek Underwood would be the first bloke I'd pick to bowl any team out. And you could put Don Bradman in it. If it had a bit of moisture and a bit of grip in it, he was almost unplayable. Wow. And because he had such control over his length whilst changing subtly his, yes. his pace. And, and that's what the best bowlers do. And, and they just keep coming back to that, that spot. Conversely, as a batsman, my job was if he came to this end of that danger zone, I had to score off it. And if he then overcorrected, it was going to be well short. And I remember um, Greg Ritchie saying to me one day, we used to play together for Queensland and yes. played a couple of test matches together. And Greg made a comment at a function sometime, you know, we'd come to a game in the morning and Greg Chappell would get the script for what balls were going to be bowled and the rest of us had to do the best we could. But it, it, it sometimes looked like that because you could almost dictate what the bowlers would bowl to you by what you did to the previous delivery. And if they over-pitched over and you hit them back down the ground or hit them through the covers, you could guarantee, except for the top 1% of bowlers, the others would try and pull their length back Yes. and would generally overcorrect and bowl a short ball next. So then it's a cut shot for four. Now, as I said before, the pressure's back on him. Yeah. You're almost dictating to him what he's, what he's bowling and, and you can almost tell what's coming next. That's fascinating. Who was the best all-weather batsman you saw in your playing career? Gee whiz, there's a lot of them. Um, 
probably start from well Gary Sobers. I, you oh. know, Gary Sobers is the best batsman I've ever seen for any conditions. And actually, Gary made a really good point in his one of his books, and it was about coaching. And he said, "I don't understand why we don't teach what the good players do." He said, "The good players make runs in all conditions in all countries, but they're dismissed as being freaks." And we tend to coach what the ordinary players do. That's very interesting. And, and he's exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, because it's, I've had conversations with other coaches and so on, and they've said to me, oh, it's all right for you, you were a freak. Yes. Well, that's the greatest insult you can give me. I wasn't a freak. Yeah. But I applied myself to, to, to what I did. And, you know, I trusted my skills to, you know, to take risks. If you want to make, you know, Batting is an exercise in risk management. If you want to make runs, you've got to take a few risks to hit some fours. And that means that you're risking getting out. But learning how to manage that risk, you know, what risk you can take in these conditions or in this situation or against this bowler is the art of batting. And bowling is an exercise in risk man- management, but there's a bit more room for error. You can get hit for four and you mm. get a wicket next ball. Once I'm out, I'm out. You know, I can't. If if I don't if if I take too big a risk and get out, that's the end of it. Yes. Whereas a bowler can try something a bit extraordinary and get hit for four or six, but he's got another go at it. Totally. So the the risk management is not quite as critical for him as it is is for the bat, the batsman. But basically, if I want to make runs, I've got to risk getting out. If I'm a bowler, I've got to risk getting hit for four if I want to take a wicket. And and that's that's the real challenge of it. Um, you know. I, I wasn't a good enough bowler to, you know, to be a frontline bowler in Test cricket. I was lucky to get a few overs here and there. Um, but you know, I, I really enjoyed bowling, and that's why I, I loved one-day cricket in the second half of my career, because I could bowl 10 overs. Yes. I was good enough to bowl 10 overs in a one-day game, but you know, I, I wasn't good enough to be bowling big spells in, in Test match cricket, which is probably a good thing, because I'm in better health today because of it. I haven't got sore knees or yeah, sore shoulders back, or a bad back, and and whatever, so I, I'm grateful that Dad was a batsman. <laughs> <laughs> so Sobers is number one for you? Yeah, Sobers was number one. Best batsman, best all-rounder. Yeah. Probably the best all-round fielder that I saw as well, um, although there are plenty of you know, guys to compete against him in the fielding area more so than, than the other two. Um, Graham Pollock from South Africa, I, I played against him. He played in that real rest of the world side that replace South Africa big strong left hand batter not aesthetically as pleasing as you know a Sobers or a Barry Richards who is another yes. one that I would would mention um, but a big bruiser of, a, of mm. a bloke hit the ball hard only had two or three shots but he played them really well and, and knew when to use them and was good enough to stop the rest until yes. he got the ones that he could <laughs> score off um, Viv Richards obviously a very very good player you know, Doug Walters was freakish. Um, you know, his record in England sort of takes a bit of an edge off his, his career. But he still made runs in England. But making runs in England is probably the hardest place. But you know, I saw Doug get runs, you know, on wet wickets, dry wickets, three times in his career that I can remember in games that I played in. He got 100 in a session in a test match. The famous one in Perth. Yeah. Did you think he'd hit that six off the last ball to bring up the 100? We pretty much knew he would because, I mean, he knew it was going to be a bouncer. Bob Willis knew it was going to be a bouncer and he, he was ready for it. And he was just that sort of guy. You know, I mean, he, uh, he could do the freakish yes. stuff. 
you know, he grew up in the country, he learned to bat on an ant bed, you yes. know, he, uh, he had skills that not many, many players had. And Bob had two men on the boundary, I he think. had two men on the boundary and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd played in the test match, uh, you know, year or so earlier in Trinidad where Doug got 100 in the session and I'd got out just before lunch, which is... You, know, you don't want to do that to the next bloke coming in is to right. get out just before a break and mean they've got to go out and bat for 10 minutes. They can't get any runs, but they can get out. Yes. And I'd been caught and bowled by Lance Gibbs in the test match in Trinidad um, about 10 minutes before lunch and Doug came in and survived till lunch then went out and got 100 in the session um, in the next session. So... I did it again to him in Perth. I got out just before the tea break and it was literally, you know, three or four over. He had to, sorry, face three or four balls in the, in the session before the tea break. And when he came back in, and, well, actually, um, yeah, well, when he came back into the tea break, I said, mate, sorry to do it to you again, but I just wanted to, to get your eye in so you get 100 in the session. And sure enough, he's gone out and he's got 100 in the session. And at the Wacker in the old days, the, the dressing room was sort of slightly at an angle to the ground. It had the the showers and the toilets were at the back of the dressing room. And when Doug got the hundred, we were all about jumping up and down in the dressing room, obviously. But I don't know whose idea it was first, but we said, let's get out of here. So when he comes back, he's coming into an empty dressing room and see what he does. And as I said to you before, you would never know whether Doug's made naught or a hundred. When he comes in, he does exactly the same thing, just quietly goes to his seat, sits down, takes his gloves and his pads off, puts his bat in and lights up a cigarette. And it was the last session of the day. So that was the end of the day's play. And we've all just shot through out of the back into the, into the bathroom and sort of looking through the crack in the door. And I think Terry Jenner was 12th man and TJ was a great mate of Dougie's and they played cards together and they yeah. both liked a cigarette. And, and as the 12th man, you have a responsibility to look after the player when he gets out. So he was the only one in the dressing room. So we watch and Dougie comes in, didn't even bat an eyelid that there's no one there. <laughs> He just walked over to his seat. He sat down, put his bat quietly in his bag, took his gloves off, took his pads off, put his cap in his bag, and TJ walked over with a beer and a cigarette. And he didn't... We, we just wasted our time, you know, because it didn't have any effect on him whatsoever, but that was just the way he was. Um, yeah, I mean, Ian, Ian was a very, very good player too. You know, I mean, um, he... Uh, Probably he had no interest in personal records. We, we didn't think about personal records because if you wanted to know what your record was, you had to go and find the wisdom and go and look it up. Well, um, well that's right. People say it wasn't as accessible then. Like now yeah. we could look up somebody's record on my phone as we're Mate, talking. You've got it right here. I mean, yeah. if I asked you what so-and-so's record was, you know, WG Grace, you could pick we could up look your phone up. and you've got yeah. it straight away. Because I understand apparently Bradman wasn't really aware he needed four in that no. last innings. no. So, you know, Ian never had any regard, and I don't think any of us had any real regard. Yeah. It wasn't until right at the end of my career when people started talking about, you know, Bradman's 6,996 yes. and I was 6,300 and whatever, um, that it, it became a little bit more of a talking point, you know, because the TV started yes. talking about it, which they hadn't done before. Anyway, so, you know, Ian was a very aggressive player, liked to hook, got on the front foot, tried to take the game up to the opposition, often made himself a bit of a target, so he'd take the pressure off every, everyone else. And, mm. uh, you know, I think that's what 
his players admired about him was that he wouldn't ask anyone to do something that he wasn't prepared to do. And, you know, I, I reckon if he'd been more conscious of records, the big difference between blokes who average, you know, 35 and those who average 50 yeah. is that the blokes who average 50 don't fail less. When they get a start, they get a big, big score. You know, Bradman, when, when you go through and check his record, on a percentage average, he failed as often as everyone else did. But when he got a start, he got a big, big score. And that's why he averaged 99.6. You know, he, he just made the most of it. And that's the difference. And I think Ian, the difference between Ian and I, for instance, was that I got a few more big scores than he got. Yes. Um, which was the difference between his 40-odd and my 50-odd. But as an all-round batsman, he was, I think he was a better player than I was. It's interesting to look at your conversion rate. Um, once you pass 50, a third of the time you go and get 100. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that came back again to the mental routine of, you know, one ball at a time. Mm. It didn't matter how many runs I was. You know, sadly, I learned early in my life that because in schoolboy cricket, there often wasn't a scoreboard. So you never knew what your score was. <laughs> so I counted my own score. Yes. And I got into the habit of counting my own score, even in test cricket, even though there's a big scoreboard there that I could just look up any moment and find out how many it was. I, I knew how many I was because I counted them. It it's, was part of my routine, if you like. It's funny. Sometimes you see uh, former players now talking about some of the greats. People talk about Viv Richards and say that if it was a minor team or it was a dead game, he didn't really care. Yeah. He, he wasn't going to give it his, his A game. Yeah, the I bigger think. the contest, the more dangerous he was. And, you know, you were never going to try and upset Viv Richards. You could only hope that he was having a day where he was a bit tired. He didn't really feel like it. You know, hope that he just got himself out. Yeah. If you got a bit angry with him or, you know, you made some smart comment to him, that was when he was likely to go, well, okay, if that's what you feel, cop this. And I remember a test match in Adelaide. We, we sent the West Indies in. It was a, a, a greenish wicket for Adelaide. And, I mean, they had one of the great all-time fast bowling attacks. I wasn't going to give them first opportunity to bowl on, on that wicket. I thought that, you know, if we, if we use these conditions well, you know, we can keep their first inning score down to a reasonable level and that gives us a better chance of winning the game. And Dennis got uh, Gordon Greenwich early and Viv came in and as I say it was a green wicket and it was a bit happening and he's beaten Viv a couple of times outside off stump and then he's come in and he's bowled a bouncer which just flicked the peak of Viv's cap. Well that was it. Game on. You can see Viv just stiffen up and thought, right, if that's the way you feel, if this is the way you're going to play, cop this. <laughs> and next ball, he took a couple of paces towards Zenith and hit it straight back over his head. And that turned, the, turned that session. Right. He got, I reckon he got about 80 before lunch. And I brought Alan Border on out of almost desperation <laughs> <laughs> just before lunch, just as something different. And Alan bowled a dead set half tracker. And Viv hit it straight up in the air. So oh, uh, wow. sometimes the, the best decisions aren't, you know, the, the, you, the, aren't intended, maybe. But, um, you know, so you don't up, upset those sort of guys. But, you know, by counting my runs, it sort of, that was part of my, my routine. And funnily enough, if the scoreboard was wrong, I couldn't face up until I got it right. Oh, really? And I mean, it, was that it, a superstition? Well, it was just, it didn't feel right. Right. You know, I, I mean, I know they're wrong. I'm standing here knowing I'm 95 and they've got 93 on the scoreboard because they gave the other two runs to the other bloke. Yes. Um, and I did it one day at Adelaide Oval. It didn't happen. It only happened once or twice in my, my career. 
but it happened one day at the Adelaide Oval and I knew the guys in the in the scoreboard and Johnny who ran the ran the scoreboard I stood there with the bloody hands on the hips you know staring at him you know bet between balls and he he said he, he saw me and he knew straight away oh Jesus we've got it wrong <laughs> And obviously the main scorer hadn't rung them by this stage to say, hey, you've just given those runs to Kim Hughes. Yeah. They should have been to Greg. But he saw me standing there giving him the teapot and he's, uh, he's got on the phone and got the right score and stuck it up on the scoreboard. Are you a superstitious person? Does cricket make people superstitious? Yeah, I think it does. Um, I think you've probably got to say yes, but it was more of a routine. No, I always... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that that was a superstition in, a, in a superstition itself. I didn't feel right unless I put my left boot on first, my left pad went on first, then I could do whatever else came. And even today, if I'm getting dressed, the left shoe goes on before the right shoe. It just doesn't feel right to do it the other way around. I've done that when I've gone to shoe shops. They've asked me to try a shoe on. I go, can I have the left one, please? Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. must get that all the time. Oh, I'm sure they do. <laughs> But it, yeah, so it sort of didn't feel right. Uh, yeah, there were other superstitions like, um, you know, someone's on 87, which was the devil's number for Australians. 111 was the devil number for England. You know, everyone had to have their feet off the floor. I didn't buy into that stuff. You know, I didn't uh, cop that. The, the opening of the book, there's a very kind of, it's almost a surreal chapter where you write about Richie Beno hmm. and you guys playing golf one day in the West Indies. Yeah. It, it's such a... Um, an insight into a man who obviously had a very internal life or valued, his, or valued his privacy. Yeah, he was a very private individual. A few people got very close to him. Ian got close to him. Um, maybe annoyingly so for Richie. I've, I never... I, I often, I, I'd often watch Richie because Ian would talk at Richie and Richie would just nod his head and just keep receiving it. And that was this thing the day in the West Indies. I was bored out of my mind we were over there commentating a series between Australia and the West Indies and it was a day off and I hadn't played golf for a while and I was desperate to have a game of golf so I no no mobile phones in the middle of the 90s so I I get the local uh, telephone book and I look through and find Georgetown Golf Club we're down in Guyana and I thought you beauty so I rang the number and it rang and rang and rang and rang and um, finally I hear this, this, the phone gets answered and this bloke on the end of it is huffing and puffing and you know, so on. And uh, so I, I explained who I was and I said, look, you know, a few of us would like to come out and play golf. Uh, is it possible? Are we going to be able to get a game? Yes, come on out. When are you coming? I said, oh, yeah, we'll be there about one o'clock. So I started ringing around and uh, Ian couldn't play, Tony Gregg couldn't play and now I'm really struggling, you know. I thought, oh, well, you know, Richie loves his golf. I'll give it a go. So I rang Rich. What year are we talking here? We're talking 96, I think, around about that time. So what Richie had been then, 60s? Late 50s, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I, um, I pick, pick, you know, he picks up the phone. You know, he's got the, you could even see the lip over the phone, you know, he's, yes, you know, sort of thing. And um, I said, Rich, Greg, um, I'm thinking of playing golf this afternoon. Are you interested? And he said, oh, look, I've got to finish this article. He said, if it's after, you know, 12 o'clock, I can do it. Um, I said, well, okay, I'll organise the golf course and I'll organise the car. I'll see you downstairs at 12.30. So sure enough, Richie had this little carry bag that he took on tour with him and down he comes um, in his off-white shirt and his 
beige pants and away we go. You see, we jump in the back of this um, hire car and off we go. And it's, it finishes up. It takes about 40 minutes to get to this golf course. And the last 15 minutes is on a dirt road. And I realised partway through this trip in the car that I'm doing the talking and he's doing the listening. So I thought, you know, see how we go. And, you know, even sort of asking him questions, you weren't getting a, a huge response. So we get to the golf course and we, all of a sudden this golf course looms up on our left and I see these two guys down in the bottom corner of this big paddock of golf holes, you know, down on their hands and knees doing, you know, some repair work on the greens and around the surrounds of the greens. And as they hear the car, one of the blokes sort of looks up and he puts his tool down and he starts running. And he was obviously the bloke that answered the phone. He was the head greenkeeper, he was the secretary of the club and he was the receptionist you know <laughs> so we we get there and it's a nine hole course but it's got two separate tees for each thing so around you go twice for 18 holes so we you know paid our money and off we go and so two or three holes into this I think well I've done all the talking here I wonder how long we can go without talking before Richie says something next 14 holes no conversation wow if I didn't talk Richie wasn't talking. And, and, and he, I don't think he was being rude necessarily. It's just the way he was, you know. He would get into his own. And he loved his golf. And, you know, he just wanted to focus on his, on his golf. And he was probably writing an article in his head while we're driving out in the, in the car. But that was just, just the way he was. But it, I just thought, that is amazing. I don't think I could go 14 holes <laughs> and not speak to someone. <laughs> now, are you still a vegan? No. No, I haven't been for 15 years. Well... Yeah, when I went to India in 2006, I think uh, I'd done it for 13 years and I thought that was probably enough punishment. Um, and all the research that I'd done, I realised that you didn't have to be that strict. Right. That 80-20 is probably the right yeah. mix. 80% um, plant-based food and 20% uh, animal-based and you're probably not getting into much trouble. But if it goes the other way, then the further away from the 80-20 you get, yes. um, the more likely it is that you'll have health problems. So um, so what's in your 20? As in animal product? Yeah, yeah. What would you be sort of having? Oh, I'll have some grass-fed beef. Yes. Um, you know, I'll, I'll um, have eggs, obviously. Um, so most things, uh, but yeah. of, a, of a good quality. Um, again, I've learned from my research that um, grass-fed is better for us than grain-fed. Um, so uh, organic as much as possible. Yeah. Um, so even, you know, organic meats and... And so I got into, you know, I first became vegetarian and then vegan, trying to get away from dairy products. Yes. Um, that was the initial reasoning behind it. Um, Dennis Lilly, when we were playing cricket, Dennis had a chiropractor friend who he, he used to see, um, particularly after his back injuries and so on. And one day um, th this chap came into the dressing room in Perth and I'd, I had an old neck injury from a baseball accident where someone dived on top of me and drove me into the ground and you know ricked my neck and it was a bit sore for a few days and a bit stiff and then it got better and so I never did anything about it but every now and then when I was bowling my neck would go crack and I'd get a pain right down you know my back and in fact a couple of times you know when it happened I fell down and oh, people wow. who were nearby thought that I'd been shot because they heard the crack oh geez um but anyway so when this chap came in to see Dennis this day I said mate while you're here yeah. Can you just have a look at this neck? It's been giving me a bit of jip. And uh, 
he sat me down in a chair and sort of, you know, just sort of worked my neck around gently and then went, and I heard it, you know, I mean, and immediately I thought, wow, yeah. that's different. Yes. So um, I asked him if he had any contacts here and he introduced me to a chiropractor in Queen Street here in Brisbane and um, I've been doing chiropractic ever since. But the first day I went to see this fellow, I had to fill in my medical history. So when he took me into his treatment room, he was reading my history and he said, "Radio," he said, let me have a look at your neck and then I'll um, talk to you about your diet. And so he did what he had to do, sort of worked on my back a bit and then he said, right, now we need to talk about your diet. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you don't reckon you got all this by accident, do you? And that was, you know, infected sinuses, upper respiratory problems, sore yes. throats all through my, you know, early life and, and playing days. And the turning point for me was he, he showed me a report. He gave me a copy of a few things to read, one of which was a report on the University of California, Los Angeles track team. Uh, which was a uh, trial that they'd done on dairy products and off dairy products. And they were twice as aerobically fit off dairy products as they were on dairy products. And their recovery was twice as quick. And I'd always struggled, you know, our fitness tests in those days was a 15 minute run. Yes. And most of the blokes would do sort of, you know, 13 or 14 laps. But 10 laps was about the best I could do because after about three laps, I had the stitch. Yeah. My thighs were aching and it just hurt. Yes. Um, so when I walked away from Keith's surgery and, and I read this thing and I thought, you beauty, for half the training, I can be as fit as I am now because I was struggling. You know, I had a business with partners. You know, we had a young family. Yeah. You know, when was I doing my training? So generally, we were living at Kenmore in the western suburbs of Brisbane in those days. And, you know, I'd have dinner with the kids. You know, they'd go yeah. to bed and then I'd go for a run. You know, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, I'd be running through the back roads of Kenmore and Mogul until one day I nearly fell in front of a, a truck coming up the, the hill. So I decided that wasn't safe. So when, when he gave me this um, information, I thought, you beauty, for half the training, I can be as fit as I am now. So I said, I'll give myself 30 days off dairy products. And I, we had a training session, I reckon, a fitness test four days into it. And I started off at the usual pace. Because I so I started off at the usual pace in, in the fitness test, expecting after three laps it was going to start hurting. And after three laps, it didn't hurt. And four laps, five laps. I finished up running about 12 laps. And if I'd realised it wasn't going to hurt, I probably could have gone, gone better. So I, I went from the sort of bottom 50% to the top 10% in, you know, in the fitness runs just from giving up dairy products. So that was the, the awakening for me yeah. that... It's not just fuel, you've got to put good fuel in, yes. in, in the body. So that was my journey. And, and that came about from our father dying at 64 from uh, you know, heart disease. And uh, it was a lifestyle-induced yeah. illness. It wasn't genetic. Right. Um, and what I realised from that point was that the most important thing we do is what we put in our mouth. Yes. Uh, for, for food. And so I started, and before mobile phones and... I had to go to libraries or, you know, get newsletters or whatever to get the information, buy magazines and, yes. and whatever. So I had to search pretty hard for it, but it was worth it. And, you know, I think I'm, uh, I'm enjoying the benefit, benefits of it today because I'm, uh, you know, still in reasonable health. I'm still running and uh, 
yeah. doing all the things that I enjoy doing. Well, there, I think there's a line in the book that you said that uh, you weren't so much thinking about trying to live longer, you wanted to live better for the time you were here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I look, I, I, I think we've probably all got to find out, uh, yeah. you know, there's probably is a day that's in the book that we're... Yeah. We're, but, I, you know, luckily we've got two teenage grandkids and up until a year or so he doesn't need me anymore but I was playing one-on-one basketball with my grandson and really uh, made it, I was sore afterwards but <laughs> at least I could do it you know and, yeah. and uh, that yeah. um you know and he he made made a comment to me one day just how important he felt it was yes. you know that we were able you know he, he and I were able to do that so it was it was worth the effort to um to do it and you know run around and kick the soccer ball with our granddaughter and uh, all of those things and you know, coaching, I, working with young people kept me young, I think. And yes. um, I always felt that I needed to show an example for one thing, but, you know, be, to be able to be active with them, to be able to throw balls and, yes. and do that. And I still do some work with my old school in Adelaide with their cricket program. And I was down there a couple of weeks ago and spent a couple of hours fielding. Mind <laughs> you, the, the next couple of days, I was sorry I did. But, um, you know, I, I enjoyed the fact that I could get out there and... Uh, look stupid because I, <laughs> I wasn't moving quite as, as well as I would have liked to. Somebody once said to me that most people retire after they spend a day in the field, not a day at the crease. Yes. Though you proved that wrong though, of course, getting that big hundred. But um, Greg, thanks so much for your time today. It's Thank been you, Sean. great Thank to you. chat to you about the book, which I absolutely loved. And um, also love Fierce Focus as well. I feel like they're kind of they're sort of sister books in a way, aren't they? Yeah, they it was sort of all, almost carries on. Yeah, not out carries on from fierce focus in, in that fierce focus, fierce focus is more the the cricket yes playing days, whereas the, the not out is more about the after cricket yeah. days. And you know the fact that I've been lucky enough to uh, a remain in the game for so long, but to be around for so many of the, of the good and not so good things that happen in the in the game through that time. Yeah, brilliant, Greg. Thanks so much. Pleasure, Sean. Thank you. 